Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. With me today is guest host Henry Butash, writer-director whose film The Atlantic City Story is playing the Denver Film Festival. Although it's when it while we're when we're recording this, I think there's some discrepancy on when it's actually available as to when this episode actually is released. When when is the screening? The film is available right now. It's been available for the last week or so at the Denver Film Festival. Um, so anyone in the state of Colorado can rent the movie through Sunday, November 8th. Uh, and then, you know, from there, it's on to the next thing. At one point, are you sitting on the couch I slept on whenever I was staying with you in New York? I am the very one, yeah. It's, uh, it's a good couch. It's a very momentous couch. Yeah. It? It's got a, it's got an amazing, amazing view. Uh, yeah, it's a nice day out today too, and the uh, the leaves in the park are turning color, so it's uh, it's beautiful out. Very fall like there. It's fall like here too. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, got cold this past week, but uh, today I haven't been out today. But uh, you know, it looks it looks gorgeous. So I I try to record in the basement for better levels, so all sunlight is gone. So yeah. Um, so uh, how are you doing? I'm good. It's just not to uh, not to date the recording of this conversation, but uh, definitely, I, it's gonna happen. De- definitely, I mean. definitely been uh, following the election this week. Um, mm-hmm. So that's just been a. Did uh, you watch anything interesting this week while uh, waiting for the election? Movie wise, sure. I watched. Uh, well, I'd be on CNN, I guess. Yeah, I've been. Uh, totally, the last six me- six weeks or so, because we just finished the film uh for for the denver festival and so the last six weeks i've just been swamped with work and i had not been able to watch anything and this week really was one of the first weeks i was able to relax and watch a film before the uh the election on tuesday and did you have a backlog so there was a backlog of things i wanted to watch i missed basically the whole october you know halloween horror watching tradition uh and so i I just wanted to pick a couple horror films i'd never seen before uh, so I watched, uh, I'd never seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, okay. I had never you, seen, you, you never watched it when you were in Austin? Nope. Not once. Uh, I, you know, I first watched it when I was in Austin and I had a friend who kept pointing out, he's like, you know, this was filmed five miles from here. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, looking all that up after I finished. Uh, and then I watched, uh, Jacques Turner's Curse of the Demon, which was amazing. I haven't seen it. Uh, that I've seen, um. I, I, that was on TCM this week, wasn't it? Uh, last week, they were playing other Turner films. They were playing his Val Luton films, so they were playing Cat People and uh, the Leopard Man. I, they might have played Curse of the Demon too, but I, I I missed it if they did. I thought it's I saw it. I've really only seen the two Cat People movies. Yeah, um, yeah. they played I Walked with a Zombie. I remember. Uh, okay, I seeing, saw that. yeah, I that, saw that that was on TCM. Um, and so th- those were earlier in his career when he was working with Val Luton as a producer. And so then this is later after he goes off and does, you know, a whole bunch of other films like uh, Out of the Past and uh, Wichita and Stars in My Crown and stuff like that. And so it's his return back to horror uh, without okay. without Val Luton. And I think it throws sort of a wrench into the people who attribute those earlier horror films to Val Luton rather than Tourneur because he make such a great horror film on his own as well and so for the people who care about that kind of thing the question of yeah. authorship uh i think the people a... who listen to this will be the people who <laughs> who care about that kind thing. of thing yeah because like, well, i out of the past was a recent discovery earlier this year i'd never seen it blew my fucking mind yeah that, that was amazing yeah that movie's incredible i remember my grandfather sent me a, a dvd uh when i was maybe like 12 or 13 uh, and even then, I, I love the movie. It's uh, it really is incredible. Yeah, the femme fatale in there is just it's it, it was really illuminating to me because it is one of the most misogynistic femme fatales. <laughs> I've, yeah, yeah. Um, this week uh, on election night, I made a point to watch uh, uh, comfort food three hour movies. So yeah. I watched I watched Godfather just because I wanted to have a silver-eyed view of america and then i want i watched titanic so i could see you know the um uh what's the ecstasy of tragedy what's the nietzschean phrase i wanted to see that <laughs> on screen just to play out in case things didn't yeah did not go well but 
that was that was my election night. Um, so you, I have you hit on something when we talked earlier about. Uh, y- basically, you said in the summer, whenever TCM was showing a ton of John Ford movies, you went on a marathon. Yeah, uh, that was this was back, uh, you know, earlier in the pandemic, and I was really looking for projects to give my life structure and and to be able to keep track of time as we do um and so i had created one in the spring i had gone through a whole i found a college syllabus on this is the long answer i hope you've got nowhere to be but it's a podcast that's what this is for um so in the there are no transcribing monkeys so in the spring i had i had found this college syllabus uh for a class on uh the cinema of hong kong and I watched, really? yeah, and so I watched maybe like 40, 45 films from Hong Kong. Uh, what time frame? The whole thing, but predominantly sort of the 70s and 80s is when the, the bulk of their creative output is. Uh, but there was some, there was earlier 60s stuff and then the 90s, especially when uh, the country is pre- preparing for the handover from Britain into, I guess now they're in sort of an independent state before they return to China's claim. Uh, uh-huh. Obviously, there's a whole political uh, thing going on that I'm not an expert in. But just from the the films, um, you know, it was... Uh, there's turmoil there now, too. But... Yeah, exactly. Um, but so basically, I, I also... There's a great book by David Bordwell, uh, who I really love. He, he writes a lot of the textbooks that are used in film schools around the country. And uh, is, even just his blog is one of my favorite places to read about you know just to find quality writing about film i'm not familiar with him um when he has this book about hong kong um and so i was basically using that as my text uh and i'd i'd read through that and then i'd watch the movies uh you know in the evening and i really loved the structure of uh just giving myself sort of a huge movie assignment like that during the pandemic when i just needed something to do Well, you went through a lot right yeah yeah i went through a lot and so then we got to july and i basically reached the end of this course that i created for myself uh and so i was looking for a new thing and uh, i saw that tcm was going to be playing john ford for pretty much the whole month uh and i thought well this you know this this could be it this could be my next project and so i i had seen you know, everyone's familiar with John Ford and I had seen, you know, his most famous, say, 10 films, uh, the kind of movies everyone has probably seen, you know, whether it's The Searchers or Stagecoach, uh, Man okay. Who Shot Liberty Valance. Uh, you know, he's got those films that sort of... See, I kind of feel like 10 is even a big number. I feel like five. Five, would sure. Be, I, well, I maybe I'm basing this off me because I was so late to the game with Ford. Yeah. Well, he... got, Ford in my teen years was just considered so... I don't know. Square's not the right word, but it was just like he was one of the Hollywood masters that Godard would cite that you'd ignore that he cited. <laughs> um, I definitely I remember uh, seeing Stagecoach when I was younger. I watched Searcher, The Searchers in high school. I remember uh, my favorite when I was college in college of college age was probably A Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. But I never really dug deeper than, say, those 10, excuse me, we've settled on five now. Those five, no, 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 no. five films. I, 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 uh, I yield the floor to your 10. Uh, but you know what I mean. Just sort of, he has sort of these uh, kind of. Uh, Hallmark kind of. Exactly. Legendary yeah. ones. Because I, I, I know, like I said, I was late to the game. I think uh, Liberty Valance I saw in Austin at the Paramount. Yeah. I actually got to see in 35, but. And I remember when I saw Stagecoach, I think I was in my 20s, and that blew my mind. Yeah. But even but even then, I was just so late to all of these. Well, I just figured uh, this was the perfect time for me to do a deep dive into everything else. Um, so how many did you watch? I don't have an official count. I watched maybe 45, uh, 45 feature films. Almost all, I would say every single uh, sound film. Of course, he made hundreds of silent films. Uh, yeah. So I don't think there's anyone who's a John Ford completionist, but uh, you know th- there could be. Impo- but well, there, it's pretty much well, impossible there, unless uh, there's so many missing yeah. sound films. Um, 
you know, I was just reading that uh, uh, his uh, Normandy Beach stuff has never seen the light of day. Uh, have you seen any of his TV stuff? I've seen a couple. Uh, there's that one with uh, Spencer Tracy, who plays like a sports journalist uh, for he's following like a, a baseball. It's like a uh, baseball really? scandal. Yeah, it's about half an hour. Um, it's actually great. It's uh, it's fantastic. I'd recommend you you find it. I just he's he was such this model of he. I mean, he was efficient filmmaker but he was the model the old model big budget yeah. filmmaking just because he made things look bigger uh you know for lack of a better term he was always the m more muscular shooter the deep focus shooter right um he was always the on location guy who would make his movies on, mostly on location and so just him on tv like especially right when he was he was starting on tv like his return from tv from like and return i mean he was gone for like what six months because that was a lot for john ford yeah was the searchers yeah it's so, like that's the just to go back and forth between the two i mean i know hitchcock was going back and forth between the two while he was still making some of his biggest movies but still you know what it wasn't spencer tracy it's uh it's john wayne i think it's called rookie of the year and he plays a journalist uh and it's half an hour long and it's basically a thematic precursor to the man who shot Liberty Valance, uh, okay. where, uh, there's this incredible rookie baseball player who seemingly come out of nowhere. And this journalist, uh, gets a scoop that actually the kid is the son of a former baseball player who was part of the, uh, Chicago White Sox, uh, Black Sox. The, excuse me. Yeah, the Black Sox. Uh, well, no, no, the White scandal. Sox are the team, but the Black Sox yeah. is the scandal. Right. That's part of the the fixing scandal. Uh, and so the son is the you know the father left baseball forever, changed his name, and so the son doesn't even know that he's the the offspring of this great professional baseball player. And so the journalist has the scoop and is ready during the World Series to to reveal it. And uh, in just this short, you know, 30 minute episode comes to the conclusion that it it's better to uh, go with the sort of myth that the kid has come up out of nowhere rather than destroy his promising career by tying him to his father, who the kid's not guilty, not that's guilty of doing. Valance part. Yeah. And so that's, you know, it's it's the same idea. And he hadn't even made Liberty Valance yet. Uh, but clearly that, that was sort of a subject that that fascinated him. Um, How many John Ford movies a day were you watching? It would be, it would probably spread out over the course of a month to like, uh, you know, I guess it would be one and a half or two a day, but there would certainly be days, TCM would do them all on Friday. And so I'd watch pretty much everything that Friday and then TCM, he, you know, he made so many films that TCM can't even play them all. Uh, so I'd watch, yeah. I'd watch. I, I didn't realize they'd play. They were even. Play. I remember I was watching a few when they came out in July, but I yeah. didn't know they had all of them. Up, they, as many well, as you saw. You they know. didn't. Well, I I saw much more, so I supplemented what they did. They did maybe like oh. six films every Friday, and so I would watch those six on Friday, and then the week in between the next Friday, I'd probably watch four or five on my own, that either I would rent or you know whatever. A lot of this early silent stuff is just on YouTube. And so it's easy to find that way. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so I was using again, like the Boardwell book on Hong Kong. I, I found a, another supplemental text and this one was a book I already owned that a friend had recommended to me by tag Gallagher, uh, about John Ford. And it's less, it has, you know, uh, biographical details about Ford, but it's less of a biography on him and more of just sort of a critical, analysis of each film one by one and so i'd watch a movie and then uh then read the chapter on you know that that film what kind of things was tad gallagher saying he would pick up on sort of a lot of the same thematic elements that would recur through all of ford's work um you know the, like the auto theories in general yeah I, I would say the the main Tag Gallagher thesis is sort of uh, this idea of pilgrimage in a lot of Ford's films, um, basically this journey from A to B, uh, whether it's in Stagecoach, literally, uh, or he even has a film called Pilgrimage in the 30s, which is kind of amazing, about this uh, mother who is jealous of her son's coming marriage, uh, doesn't want to let her son 
leave the house, you know, leave her love basically, and uh, without his knowledge, enlists him in the war because she doesn't want him to leave and be with this woman. So the son goes off to World War One. Uh, and oh, I was about to ask which war. Yeah, World War One, and, and he's killed in action. And so the the second half of the film is the mother living with this guilt of what she's done, basically killing her son out of out of jealousy. Um, and it ends with her going to Paris with a sort of uh, organized tour by the military, a sort of a promotional event to go visit the fallen, gra- you know, the graves of fallen uh, soldiers with all the mothers. Mm-hmm. But of course, she feels like a fraud because uh, she's the one who enlisted him without without his knowledge. And so it's her making a pilgrimage to Paris to her son's grave and uh, kind of coming to terms with with what she did. And that's an extremely powerful early when four. when is this? it's maybe 33 34 it's early you know early 30s my big my big uh uh viewing from the ford movies in july on tcm which i had never seen was the informer which also blew my mind yeah that, like, that like, one's awesome we, we talked about this the other day about the murnau influence which like like ford really allowed himself to like I mean, Murnau is brought over by Fox, and there's one movie Ford shot on some of Murnau's sets, but this one, the transitions, the dreamlike feeling of it, like it's, it, it doesn't feel you can if you're aware of of Sunrise or something like that, you'll look out for it. But this feels like a really poetic artist on his own doing his own stuff. Too. Right, right, uh, and I, and I think clearly that story is. Uh, you know, important to him as well. Uh, and again, sort of just the guilt that the character is living with, which is similar to Pilgrimage. It's about these characters who are sort of harboring guilt and, and don't know how to, how to properly release it into the world. Let's go ahead and dive into the specific movie, uh, your pick, which um, <laughs> you okay? Uh, you want to go ahead and and lay out the name and the uh, the synopsis? Sure, it's uh, the Long Gray Line, which uh, is sort of this very ambitious film he made. It's the film he made right before The Searchers uh, about Marty Marr, uh, sort of a. Uh, you know, custodian teacher type at, at West Point Academy. That's uh, basically the film. It's sort of vignettes of this man's life. Of his entire, entire life. Yeah. Um, so I hadn't seen it whenever you wanted to watch this. Um, I, I mentioned on last week's episode, I'd watched uh, Last Hurrah last week, which is like two years after The Searchers, which uh, I would argue is almost as good as Searchers in my mind. Uh, to be fair, I don't have a high, uh, as high opinion as searcher as uh, film historians. Um, and you suggested this one. You suggested this. You were between this and Mugamba, which yeah. was like a year before, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you you warned me about this movie. And the, thing, <laughs> this, the specific thing you said was it starts out like a Jerry Lewis movie. Totally. <laughs> and. And the thing is, the movie has a very clear turning point. Like, it's weird how, like, this movie, in theory, kind of wants to, like, should go back and forth tonally. But, like, and I want to, like, is this John Ford doing South Korea cinema before South Korea? But then the movie has its turning point, And you, the way you phrased it was, like, it ha- it gets very moving. And the thing is, I, I want to say the turning point's not that far into the movie. It's like a half hour, 45 minutes in. I would I personally say later, to me... Uh, the turning point is when uh, I have it as the uh, child dying. Yeah, that's when I, that's that's actually like an hour and ten minutes into the movie. Okay, the whole first hour uh, just is great, but it's like slapstick. It feels very frivolous. There's like five minute, ten minutes of just the Army Notre Dame football game, um, and so it's kind of very silly and low stakes. Um, but what I love is how the whole tone of the film almost follows the progression one would take through life. Um, if you want to touch on that theme of uh, pilgrimage, you think yeah. being, being frivolous when you're young and being serious when you're old. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's when you're young, certainly it's all kind of fun to you. And then through the course of the film, the character first 
realizes that he has responsibility to take on. So first it's him becoming a father. Uh, then it's him wanting to leave West Point when everyone else is going off to World War One. But he realizes he has a duty to stay. Um, and so basically kind of coming to turn, recognizing life and starting to come to terms with responsibility and, and obligation and duty. Uh, and then basically watching kind of life pass by like this parade at, you know, on the campus grounds, just sort of seeing life parade by you. And, uh, you know, by the end, just a series of tragedies and, and reflections on that. So the well, tone of the movie okay, really shifts. Here's the thing. I think you're being very charitable about this first hour. Yeah. There, there's like... Oh, I think it's way too. I think it's way too long. Ford if it's is good at comedy. Yeah, Ford has been good at comedy. He's done a lot in his his career with that. Yeah. So, I think the the focal point for me uh, was really Maureen O'Hara's first like three or four scenes. Like her performance in the first like three or four scenes is almost catatonic and bizarre, and it's not performance it's direction of performance they, like it it's it's not even on. not even close to a realistic attempt an attempt at a realistic depiction they but don't Ford's probably just like say hey how wide can your eyes get yeah can you stare straight ahead and not blink they don't they don't even talk until they decide to get married or whatever it is so it's like you know and then she does the the really like almost i i the, i i don't i don't know if this is fair but i feel like there's like a high school community theater uh, feeling of some of the 50s musicals that sometimes translates over to 50s dramas. And the way she puts her face into Tyrone Power's face to kiss him. When she wants to kiss him, yeah. Kiss, yeah. The theatricality of it and the oddness of it. Yeah. It is... Well, I'm not, I'm not like a great thinker on film and, and art, but, you know... What a lot of people, and I think I would disagree. I, what I think a lot of people like Godard or, or previous academics would point out in Ford is sort of the Brechtian nature of of his filmmaking, which is sort of theatrical and and is you know not an attempt at realism so much as you're supposed to know you're see, watching a movie. Uh, I guess, but that always goes into um, opposition with the backgrounds because the backgrounds or. Something like we also are going to need to go down the line of discussing Grapes of Wrath and how green was my valley at some point, but sure, like that one, there's there's a lot of subdued stuff in in Grapes of Wrath. Oh stuff. yeah, I I think yeah, definitely. I mean, he's he's just so great to me, but it is definitely a very odd first hour to the film, to the Long Gray Line, where it just feels kind of silly. Even the lighting is just like everything is, uh, you know, everything's lit kind of front lid and mm. it later in the movie there's with when the tone changes suddenly there's a lot of great shadows and the images become very dark especially inside the house and it's almost like the cinematography evolves with the tone of the film uh just you know, in the I look think what i gave it a lot of uh credit for is like the quiet man from a color standpoint is just you, you you'd seen ford kind of holding back because everyone knew him for composition and uh, then you see his use of color. Like I've never seen uh, drums along the Mohawk, like the. But there's something like Quiet Man. It was obviously a big passion project for Ford, and the color in that is so astonishing that like I was still giving him credit of just like I want to see what Ford does with Technicolor, especially in Technicolor's heyday like this. Yeah. So I guess that first hour I gave a lot of. Um, credit where credit may have not been due it was also his first film in cinemascope in widescreen and i think he I noted that too i think he hated kind of I, I, from what i understand he hated that format <laughs> but like uh, hubert hated that too. yeah exactly uh but the film still looks incredible and i think as a result of him dealing with a new image uh size uh, his shots are a lot longer than they had been previously. And I, I think he is sort of discovering a new way of staging scenes as well. There is, there's, there's a frustration. I, I tend to find, especially in some of the 50 stuff I've seen of Ford's that when he gets into sets, like that's not where, that's not where the meals I see from him, him eating go to. Like it's, um, you know, he searchers goes back to one eight five and last Hurrah's one eight five. Um, 
I mean, he he had probably dealt boxy with um, TV, but like I, you know, he. I mean, I also the movie he did after this was uh, Mr. Roberts, which like there's I do you know the full story on that? Because I vaguely know the whole him getting fired, but him not really getting fired. Yeah, because, like, I'm really not. That, yeah, sorry to interrupt you. I'm really not sure how much of Mr. Roberts he actually directed. I really don't know. Um, that's a scope movie, though. Yeah, uh, I know he had a falling out with Henry Fonda on that film. Because Henry Fonda, the the story was Henry Fonda had played the part on stage, and I mean, how many movies had they done together by that point? Four, something Five? like I don't I don't know the exact number, but yeah, I mean they had done. I think it hadn't been. Hmm. I'm trying to think when Henry Fonda had taken a break from film to only do theater, uh, and I, for, I see I've forgotten about all of this. And I think it was, was it after World War Two. I'm trying to remember if it was during World War II or if it was after World War II. After World War II, they did uh, My Darling Clementine and Fort Apache. Um, uh, My Darling Clementine's like 46, or I think. Yeah, but but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that the first movie he does, first narrative he does after the war? Yeah, I want to say They Were Expendable might have been it. Oh, uh, you're right. Yeah, but yeah, They Were Expendable. Is, is, is that right, or is that like he – because – I still haven't seen that, but I know like he supposedly dislikes that movie, but a lot of vets like that movie. I think it's a, it's a pretty solid, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 pretty sure it's a great it's a solid movie that he's just hating on because uh the war was still too close to him. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but so they do Henry Fonda and Ford do, uh, My Darling Clementine and and Ford Apache and. Is there one other or not? I don't think so. Um, well, it's it's Ford. The whole pro- the problem with following his filmographies are like there's three movies in between every, every nothing yeah. funny that you just don't you forgot about. Like, oh yeah, he's. I mean, the guy came out of silence, and I was trying to think of the modern antecedent to him right now, and the closest I got was Eastwood. I wish um, um, uh, frequent te- uh, co-host Ted Haycraft was on here right now to talk about it since he's yeah. a big Eastwood guy. But Eastwood's one of those guys that seems like they go so fast right now yeah and uh or so someone like soderbergh too production is not as big a deal to them and they can they can uh, launch these huge movies really quickly right um the thing i mean one thing with ford is that if some years he's got like two three movies coming out in the same year uh which was obviously more common back then uh, uh long gray line came out the same year as mr roberts and yeah. mr roberts is weird because like it it got a bunch of awards and he had to share the awards with uh whoever i forget the um i have it written down somewhere i think it's mervyn Leroy, oh, right mervyn Leroy. Yes. yeah who i think is actually also a really interesting filmmaker uh who doesn't quite get his due because he never quite tries to stand out and he almost pre- preferred being a producer he was also a producer uh, and that Mr. Roberts is like a perfect example of the kind of filmmaker he was, where he took over for Ford and his sole objective was to make the movie have uh, stylistic continuity with the scenes Ford had already shot. And so he, re- okay. he really was sort of like this chame- chameleon craftsman who wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. But uh, was, it, was Leroy a musical director? He had done musicals. Yeah, um, he did. Uh, well, he did Gypsy towards the end of his career, which is a great, okay. n- great Natalie Wood performance. Um, but he did. Uh, didn't he do Gold Diggers of 1933, I believe? I think that's what I'm thinking. of. Yeah. Um, so he's done a whole bunch of, uh, you know, he did. What's uh, what's the Edward G. Robinson uh, gangster movie from the 30s? Um, uh, I don't know. That's a Mervyn uh, Leroy movie. There's another Edward G. Robinson Leroy movie called Two Seconds, where uh, Robinson is uh, on death row, and it's supposedly the two seconds of uh, on the electric chair from when the lever is pulled to when you're dead. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and well, so it, and so one of my favorite stories of all time, or issues of comics of all time, is uh, from Hell, where uh, it's the like, the second to last chapter takes place in the second before uh, Jack the Ripper dies. Yeah, well, so in this, basically, the movie starts with him getting placed down in the electric chair, and the uh, you know the person in the prison pulls the lever, and then within those quote unquote two seconds. Uh, we get a flashback his, to his life and every framing device. Yeah, flashback. yeah, exactly. Everything that led him to this moment. 
Uh, oh my God, I can't believe I forgot what is his masterpiece and the greatest of all his films, which is I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. I have seen that. That's seen that. that's like a stone cold masterpiece. I can't believe uh, I didn't even think of that. Um, so anyway, Leroy's an interesting director too, uh, but it's harder to find good writing about him just because it seems like he gets uh, dismissed a bit for uh, you know just sort of a, a man for hire kind of kind of thing. Which I mean, Ford is just too strong of a voice to be that, but with the frequency with which he worked, like we would now look at him like that. Right. Especially, I mean, like he shaped his pro. I mean, what what did the biography and books say about him? Because he worked with the same screenwriters very frequently. Yeah. Uh, well, he got. I mean, by the end of the '30s, by the late '30s, he is like one of the premier A-list filmmakers. Uh, you know, he he has uh, four Oscars for best director. They're almost all before World War II. They're all from the '30s, I believe, with the lone exception of I think The Quiet Man. Uh, yeah, no, and and I, I think I'm I one of the things I've found going into this and going back into La, uh, Last Hurrah is a willingness to admit that he still maintained his game into the fifties. Oh yeah. He's, you know what people, the main films people talk about when it comes to Ford, whether it's the searchers or even the long gray line that we're talking about now, or man who shot Liberty Valance. It's like the man is over 60 years old when he's making those films. He's not uh, quote unquote in the prime of, of his life. He's already quite advanced in age. Uh, mm-hmm. And sort of what people consider as his greatest films are are much later than you know most filmmakers would be in their heyday. Yeah, but I one of the things when I I find going back to him is that you find that some of he made equally as good films. He was just making them at such a increased frequency. Like the period between like um, Stagecoach, Young Mr. Lincoln, How Green Was My Valley, Grapes of Wrath. That period is pretty damn unparalleled yeah i mean that's i would say that is when he was considered uh you know basically top of the industry just in terms of uh you know being a working director and that's when the bulk of his academy nominations came from and uh i think after that and then obviously the war came after the war i think he had a lot of flexibility just in terms of writing and shaping his own projects and he formed his own production company argosi uh pictures or productions whatever it is there was something where like he um was it selznick tried to give him a contract that he backed out of or fox back got tried to get him back and he was just like he did a bunch of movies for republic at that point yeah and he ends up rko so he ends up kind of going independent after the war um in a way that gave him a lot of flexibility. And that's how you end up with a movie like The Long Gray Line, which is sort of just this amorphous, ambitious story of a man's life. Okay, let's get let's get back to uh, Long Gray Line. Sure. Um, so there's the first hour, which I know I have written in my notes at one point, is this movie fucking with me? Like, <laughs> I was like, John Ford is better than this. Like, it's weird. It's, it's a weird first hour. It is. There's like the Notre Dame game, which you alluded to earlier, is the Newt Rockney first uh, quarterback throwing game, I guess. Yeah. And then, yeah, uh, <laughs> it was that first hour. And like Tyrone Power's performance, like I am wholly unfamiliar with him. I know like he, the, him and Ford did two movies together. He was originally supposed to be a um play in how green was my valley at one point is that true i didn't know that yeah i i it's, it was an adult character i forget which character he's supposed to play in how green was my valley but um what do you think of the performance i think he's great the only i'm not well versed in his career either but i i've seen him in uh henry king's version of uh this whole uh jesse james story Okay. Uh, I forget what year that's from. It's got to be late 30s, but it's uh, Henry Ford and Tyrone Power uh, directed by Henry King, and that's great. Um, but honestly, I have not seen a lot of other Tyrone Power films. Uh, I know he worked with Henry King a lot, uh, mm-hmm. 
But I think his performance is great in the long gray line, and so is Maureen O'Hara's. Well, um, I mean, a lot of Tyrone Power's performance is to, like, uh, age convincingly. Totally, yeah. Um, yeah, you don't even realize it, but the whole kind of second half of the movie, he's wearing aged makeup. Uh, or or even, like, the framing device. Like, I, I had to double-check, like, was that him in the framing device? Yeah, <laughs> uh, when he's talking to Eisenhower. I, I, so they had to, um, in the very opening scene, uh, the fr- is the framing device, they have Eisenhower in there when Eisenhower is still towards the end of his first term. And I found it fascinating. One, they had to get, assign, uh, get Eisenhower to sign off to be, even be a character in the film. Um, I have been trying to deal a lot lately, as much as I've been loving watching a lot of these Ford movies, Ford's politics. And I really don't want to look at it with a modern lensing, but it's fascinating that he has Eisenhower, the man who coined the phrase military industrial complex. And it's in a movie about, I don't want to say glorifying West Point because that's the whole thing with Ford. Ford's thing is always about celebration mixed with ambivalence and an awareness of the ramifications of that celebration. Like he, like, you know, the the man who came, like, popularized the print the legend idea, like, this is this is something, like, I don't know if this is in the book, but, like, this is something that he had to deal with his entire life, and he was constantly dealing with. Well, I think the long gray line is actually very complicated in terms of his attitude towards the military. Yes, very much. It can, very, very much. It can certainly be read as sort of the celebration of military life uh but at the same time you go back to the beginning of the film when marty mars first arriving and you know the whole ceremony around everything is ridiculous to him uh and he you know he calls west point a, a prison uh and he keeps i'd even i'd even point out that the whole movie itself is constantly saying like this is an institution where we send our best people and then as soon as they leave away they become a, a statistic a dead statistic totally yeah and he and he keeps trying to leave over the course of the whole film and then In, including out of disgust for yeah, the deaths uh, that, and the wars and, that and West Point's pushing into totally and then it's out of various things beyond his control that sort of pull him back and so i don't know i think it's a very complicated film uh like probably most of his films uh, where there's sort of a simple surface, but uh, I think his politics in general are, are very complicated. I mean, I mean, he's the guy who made the Grapes of Wrath, which you know. Yeah. Uh, there was a quote I came across recently from Peter Bogdanovich talking about um, John Wayne's politics, which are pretty obvious, and he was talking about Ford framing them, and he said something like, uh, "Ford talking about Wayne's like I love that damn Republican," and. It felt like one of those Bogdanovich ass coverings, like, or Bogdanovich kind of changing the score. But at the same time, like you said, Ford was so blatantly a this this humanistic, understanding, sensitive Irish artist. You yeah, know? I think Ward Bond, who's also in the film and worked with uh, Ford a whole bunch, uh, I think he. Gosh, I don't want to get anything wrong, but I think he was very far to the right politically and i think ford would actually have disagreements with him about a lot of things uh Mm -hmm. based on based on different anecdotes i read uh i don't want to slap labels on anyone falsely but yeah and it's also tricky even like i i've had this argument with friends lately where if you call someone a republican before 1960 it doesn't mean the same thing oh yeah oh you know everything is kind of fluid uh so yeah yeah so i and i really don't want to frame a modern lensing on all this it's just totally this, this ford is the man who was a clansman in birth of a nation uh was you know assistant director on birth of for griffith and much like griffith like popularized the notion of the indian savage and then completely worked a long period of time to make an apology for that out of his filmography yeah and it ends kind of with cheyenne autumn which is one of my favorite ford films where uh see i've never seen it yeah it's really fantastic uh carl malden is great losing his mind great performance from carl malden 
Um, that's a wonderful film, and it's sort of taken a total uh, 180 from it. Really, Stagecoach, I think, is uh, where one could levy the most accusation of sort of one of how one sided his depiction is. Um, but I think in general, he's very nuanced uh, about almost yeah. everything. You're putting your finger on one of the problems I've had with Stagecoach because I've always seen Stagecoach spoken of in terms of the beginning of his apology. And to me, it's not enough, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's got terrible – it's got like that pan uh, to to the Native Americans up on that cliff uh, with sort of a – what's supposed to be a, a scary kind of music cue at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the film where – you know, accusations of facelessness probably uh, are strongest. But in general, I mean, if you look well, at I, all of his films in general, he's really someone who's preoccupied with uh, intolerance and, and sort of, uh, he really is one of the great kind of humanist filmmakers. So it just feels like a really very, really it feels is. like a very kind of precursory or cursory reading of, uh, of his films. Uh, well, the John Wayne way. character in Searchers, there, like, I think a lot of the uh, textural readings comes on his uh, feelings of ambivalence and switches in extreme feelings on things. So, yeah. Like him switching um, at the end of the movie is always seen as this uh, turning point in understanding in America's cinema of uh, uh, simplistic stereotypes, you know? And, that reading sometimes to me is just so giving to right. charitable, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, Which it is not, I, I don't even think that's necessarily a fault against the film. It's more of a fault against the readings of the movie. Sure. Um, yeah. There's a great, um, I remember when one of Tarantino's first Westerns came out, I guess when Django Unchained came out, maybe, I don't know what, which one it was. Uh, he did an interview where he talks, he, you know, calls Ford a racist, uh, and, and cites, uh, you know, different reasons why he thinks that to be the case. And it was in film comment, the magazine that Kent Jones wrote basically a rebuttal to that, uh, mentioning how taking a day's pay as an extra to play a Klansman in Birth of a Nation is not. Uh, you can't equate that with being a Klansman, uh, you know, that, that there's a, there's a difference in those two things. Um, mm. and so it's this interesting article. I don't know if you've read it by Kent Jones, basically. I haven't. I, I, I the, the, the argument seems convincing though. Yeah. Basically just sort of, uh, highlighting the humanism in, in, uh, in Ford's films. Well, it also like, it's an issue I've, I've been dealing with a lot lately. Like I, I, I keep going to history right now, reading history for escape from current times. And then like wanting to look at it with a modern lens, but also not contextualizing so much of what I'm looking at. Uh-huh. Like just, it's the fifties. It's where mindsets were at at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else do I get? Um, do you, the, uh, um, Red Sun stuff, there's some really good stuff in regards to that, uh, where, like, the transition between um, uh, him crying, like, the 20-year cut there is like the uh, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year cut in Citizen Kane. Yeah. There's a, cool. there's some really interesting time jumping that happens in the film. Just, uh, it's a lot like, uh, it's almost like a Ford's version of the life and death of Colonel Blimp that's a really good observation uh it's even got sort of the same framing device uh and then the, you know it's the same wars and the characters also are sort of recognizing the changing of times and how war becomes different how basically uh the, yeah. the fun in in their earlier years is replaced by just the tragedy that one experiences over time it's got the same Technicolor Splendor too. Yeah, so um, I think there's a lot of parallels between those two films, and that's a film I really love too. Yeah, that's like Scorsese's favorite um, Archer's movie. Uh, 
Yeah, th- these are the things where like if Ford only made a movie once every two years, we could these parallels would be a little more obvious, I think. You saying you just think he over diluted himself? I don't think it's a negative. I think because he, he produced at such a high level so consistently. Yeah, like I mean, it's just it's it's literally just or it's very much just how we look at his career. And I mean, like, I mean, he is the record holder for best director winner and for Oscars, which you know you and I would probably be like, oh, you know, Oscars being a <laughs> quality. You know, screw that. But, like, it actually plays out once you dive into the quality. Like, his level of sensitivity, like, I don't know. Every time I go back to a Ford movie, I'm just blown away by it. Like, I was raving about this on last week's episode about Last Hurrah's ending. But what I found so fascinating is, like, the last 20 minutes of that is just an amazing... It it should have been Spencer Tracy's last movie. It would have been a great last role. And then it builds up to this last line, which I really don't want to spoil. But at the same time, it's amazing. This last line is a giant audience laugh. Yeah. And then it goes back to its mournful way of dealing with it. Like he, I know I had this screening of uh, my darling Clementine and I can't remember all of my logical followings on this, but I remember thinking this is the move. This has to be one of the most influential movies on Spielberg. This is like when we watch movies in a theater, Ford is is the one playing on in a, in a you know populist and sophisticated way on all of our the things we like about movies. Yeah. Like big movies, big studio movies. And there's certainly a Lincoln overlap as well. I think Lincoln is in like eight different John Ford films. Ford was Ford was obsessed with him. Wait, uh, wait, what? Oh, I mean, he was in some of the silence. He was obviously in Young Mister Le- uh, Lincoln. Yeah, he makes his first appearance in the Iron Horse, which is a great, great silent film that Ford made. Uh, then there's uh, sort of uh, tertiary storylines, like The Prisoner of Shark Island, is about. The doctor, uh, what's his name? Doctor Mud. 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 Yeah, who uh, you know who treated John Wilkes Booth uh, on that night. There's a, uh, it's got a great opening actually where it shows the assassination uh, at the theater and it sort of freezes on this uh, still frame, freeze frame uh, of of Lincoln still sitting really? in the, sitting in the chair. Yeah. Huh. Um. Yeah, so there's that. Then uh, obviously, young Mr. Lincoln, uh, he makes, he's just a portrait in Cheyenne Autumn uh, that Edward okay. G. Robinson is talking to, uh, sort of asking for guidance. So Lincoln was obviously sort of a meaningful figure to to Ford. Um, yeah. So you know, you, I, I, I've, of course, Spielberg tells that famous story of when he had a chance to meet. Ford uh, in his office and Ford pointed to uh, those paintings and said, you know, what do you notice? And he was telling Spielberg to look where the horizon of, of each image was. No, the, the one third uh, art rule, whatever it is. Yeah. Right on the top or on the bottom. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Never so. put your horizon in the middle. Yeah. So, I, and I know Spielberg has just said about how, you know, influential Ford was to him. Uh, so I'm sure smarter people than I could, could find endless parallels between them. Uh, so winding down, um, do you want to talk a little bit about your movie and how much Ford might have been influential on that? Sure. I don't think there were, I was not thinking consciously of Ford at all making this film. Uh, I could see your compositions. I mean, there's some Ford in your compositions. I could pull parallels out of my ass and and lie to you, but, (laughs) uh, you know, if you want me to just kind of make stuff up, he's not someone I was actively thinking about. When uh, when I made this film, I I was I, I think I was going for more foundationally. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly there's a lot that I respond to Ford thematically, just his compositions and his staging. I really respond to. Um, I think each time you watch one of his films, you learn more just about the construction of a film, how to put scenes together. 
Um, that that's an interesting point because I know one of the things I wrote down, especially in the fifties, Ford movies. You've heard that Hawks' uh, uh, idea of how to make a good movie is to have a good beginning, a good end, and three good scenes in between. I've never heard that, but it sounds like a good start. It's a, it's, a, it's a good opening ten minutes, a good closing ten minutes, and three scenes in between. Yeah, and Ford seems to be doing it just because there's structurally there's some really lackadaisical stuff or very episodic stuff but then like he really seems to kick in the muscle into like the last like the last half hour 40 minutes of each of these movies yeah Searchers kind of for me follows that structure a little too he has this reputation of uh you know being a storyteller and quote-unquote theatrical but i think he's actually extremely experimental uh just in a lot of his structure and a lot of his filmmaking I do want to go on this because our last phone call, you went and you were, we were talking about Grapes of Wrath and you were talking about the realism versus the, um, um, you, you brought out the scene in one of my favorite scenes in Grapes of Wrath, the, um, you know, Greg Tolan's like masterclass of lighting with a single candle and the expressionism in it. And that's when you and I, I, I started raving about the informer to you, but yeah. you had an argument that there's more dreamlike stuff in Ford than is given credit for. Well, I think a lot of it grows out of the Murnau influence from when he was at Fox. And Frank Borzaghi had the same thing. I guess, you know, Murnau had been a success with Fox. And so they I know they did a screening for their other filmmakers and almost made it sort of the studio look, uh, what Murnau was Dream-like doing. Dreamlike express, German expressionism. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why that's how you get Borzaghi and Ford in the 30s doing very uh, inspired work from Murnau. Um, but Ford, it's interesting watching Ford through the 30s as he start, uses Murnau as a starting point and takes it into his own thing. Um, and by the time you get to a movie like The Grapes of Wrath, it's interesting because everyone always talks about how, you know, when they talk about The Grapes of Wrath, it's always words like gritty and just the realism of it. Kind of you could feel how dirty it is and, and you know, sort of exclamations like that. And if you watch the movie, it's really just one of his most abstract-looking films. Um, you know, especially that scene we talked about early on in the film with Henry Fonda and uh, John Carradine, where they're in the empty house with the lone candle, uh, and just spatially, you almost have no idea what you're looking at. It's just like faces and body parts illuminated in in the darkness. It's uh, like stylistically, that movie's very far out and not quite the gritty realism of of the great De- great depression that you know people talk about it as i guess when it, that scene stood out for me just because uh i always think when i watch that scene that that scene is um what 37 years before barry Lyndon, right and like <laughs> that's funny the ball the balls of lighting a scene with a candle. Like I, st- every time I, w- and I think technical details when I watch that move, when I watch that scene and I get what you're saying theatrically. It just seems like the grittiness is just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is clearly if you want to light a scene with one candle, you're, you're definitely going for an expressionist point. here. Yeah. Um, yeah. so definitely just in general, he's a, a really kind of experimental filmmaker. Um, and I think that definitely capable of it too. Yeah. Even even when he's in his most uh, crowd pleasing instincts. Totally. And then you, by the time you get to the long gray line, it's just kind of structural, uh, really interesting structural thing where you've got the bookends like life and death of Colonel Blimp of him at the white house talking with Eisenhower. But then you have basically just sort of episodic vignettes through a man's life starting with, silly slapstick and then moving through responsibility and tragedy it's it's a really weird film and the first time i ever watched it i almost turned it off in that first hour just because i thought okay this is a it, that first half hour yeah the first 45 minutes yeah I, you know i just thought okay this is one of the silly ones uh he must have you know with with the searchers next that's when he gets serious again but i you know i kept watching and and just suddenly the movie changes tone and it becomes so moving, uh, you know, just between the death of their child and then the deaths of, of basically his his foster sons at, at the West at West Point as they go off to war. Um, Ford died in uh, um, was the mid seventies. Around then, yeah, I don't I don't know the year. 
Me neither. He, he's got 20 years of life, yet the thing I find about the 50s movies is mortality. He's really already there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, same thing with... Whether it's the end of his career or the end of his life. Same thing with a movie like She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, which is, you know, John Wayne basically retiring from the cavalry uh, and taking stock of, of his life. Uh, or a movie, he made, it was a couple movies after The Searchers, which is... Uh, uh, what the hell is it called? Wings of Eagles? Yeah. That sounds right. Um, I, I kept wanting to I call it, it... I wanted to call it uh, Where Eagles Dare or whatever, that Clint Eastwood movie. It's on, It's the Wings of Eagle. Uh, what is it? You can look it up. Can I look it up? Hey, do a clap right now and I can cut this out. Thank you. The Wings of Eagles. That's what it is. Okay. Uh, yeah, Wings of Eagles. It's the one he made right after after The Searchers. Um and uh, and that one's similar. Uh, it's about I forget the guy's name, but that's another biographical war film, a lot like The Long Gray Line, uh, where I think instead he's in the Air Force. Uh, and is this the one that where Ford knew, uh, he was basing this off a flyer he knew from World War Two? Exactly. Yeah, and and he ends up becoming a writer in Hollywood. Uh, and Ward Bond plays essentially John Ford. He you know he's playing a Hollywood filmmaker producer. Uh, but he's 100 uh, percent, you know, cosplaying as John Ford as like <laughs> as like an inside joke, um, uh, even, you know, down to the hat and the pipe and the mannerisms. Um, and so uh, it's funny just from that perspective to see like basically a close friend, Ward Bond, who, you know, did like 20 movies with Ford, uh, just doing an imitation of him, essentially, in front of the camera. Just finally beginning uh, getting unleashed to do the uh, yeah. interpretation. Uh, did you want to talk about anything about his World War II stuff? I've, I don't think I've ever seen all of Battle of Midday. Yeah, I mean, Battle of Midday is very moving. Um, I don't know what I would have to say about it that smarter people I, than I have Most said, of my, but... my stuff from it, it comes was more thoroughly... I, all I've read from it is the Mark Harris book, Five Came Back, and they always talk about how um, the explosion started to get the film off of... Um, uh, moved the film slightly, so it was the inspiration for war filmmaking from that point on. It yeah, was, you know, like that film inadvertently came, like made cinema verite in some way, or at least like here's how to do handheld camera to show chaos of action. It certainly feels that way. Um, and uh, Wings of Eagles kind of has similar war stuff as well, where uh, at one point it just cuts to black and you just get these rapid fire explosions of of light in the darkness. Uh, again kind of very abstract and wings of eagles uh ends with basically him being too not cut out for the war and he gets transferred to a boat that's going back uh back to the mainland uh so to circle back to what you were talking about earlier it's very much those films he's really obsessed with sort of time and and aging and people sort of trying to reconcile the things that happen to them in life that are beyond their control. Yeah. I mean, I, it seems like he was one of America's greatest cinematic storytellers for a good 30 years or up there in the higher echelon. And as he got older, obviously this is going to be his preoccupation. So no, uh, um, I think it's great that we got so many films from old man, John Ford, you know, not just, uh, you know, not just the silence or through the 30s or, or the war films. It's just every decade is... Uh... Well, the fascinating thing for me is, I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about whether it's a negative, but John Ford is one of those people you're not going to, you, as you mentioned earlier, you're not going to get through his filmography. You can keep going back and finding something new from him. Yeah, it's... Uh... This is a guy that treated that, that threw off... Sh- amazing feature films like they were short stories he had to shit out six a year totally uh it's it's just an endless source even down to seven women his last narrative feature film uh it was deeply moving to watch that because uh it feels like he's discovered again a new way of filmmaking it's like his 200th feature film he's like seven you know seven years old uh and you just think this guy could have kept doing it forever uh, what what in particular? What in particular? It just again how sort of uh, 
forward thinking it is in terms of his filmmaking, his cutting. Uh, it's 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 like when you look at Hitchcock's last movies, like you want to like I, when you want to imagine that he would have adapted, you know, Family Plot is still coming. So like <laughs> it's not you you're just you're just really hoping the best for when you know the history. Yeah. But like you, like and to be fair, Ford, especially in the fifties with all the like scope and technicolor being thrown at him like he still kept up with the times on it oh, yeah i mean even just the you know transition of sound there are filmmakers who never figured that out so the guy just kept evolving uh all from a guy that started out as uh it's funny when you look him up on my imdb there's still his acting credits are almost equally atop his directing credits because yeah. he's such an actor in the silence and yeah and he had just gone he over he had just gone over there because his brother was working in in uh yeah in hollywood yeah cool well um thank you for being on the podcast henry yeah thank you buddy i appreciate it It it's fun this is awesome you need to totally totally come back and pick some more movies to talk about sure we'll just do another john ford movie (laughs) oh jesus 